HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's podcast is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, reminding you to eat wisely. Look for their products in your local stores or check them out online at bobsredmill.com and explore their huge range of products and recipes. And use the code Taste of the Past for 25% off your order. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. And on today's show, we have a little something special for you. Uh, The director of communications for Heritage Radio Network was out with a team of reporters in Charleston at the Charleston Food Festival recently. And she put together a terrific panel. And turns out it's perfect for my show. Her name is Kat Johnson. Kat, welcome. Hi, Linda. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about this panel you put together down in Charleston and what it was about. Yes. So I actually put together two panels focusing on some of these nearly extinct heirloom crops that are getting so much attention right now in the South. One of them was the Carolina African runner peanut, and the other one was Sapelo Island purple ribbon sugarcane. And this is the panel we're talking about today. Now, the sugarcane, I know, is close to your heart. Tell me a little bit why you chose that one. Yes, it is. Um, I got very into the story because my dad is, I guess you would call like a hobby, hobbyist sugarcane syrup maker. He's been making cane syrup almost 25 years. I remember, you know, he found a kettle in his grandfather's farm and got and was like, what is this? And, and this is where? This is in uh, Barber County, Alabama. And so he just kind of started learning and asking um, older people like how to make sugarcane syrup. And he had kettles and mills. And every every November we would harvest the cane. You um, strip it, cut it down, and then you grind it up, boil it into a syrup. And it's kind of a lost art in many ways because it's pretty labor intensive for the amount of syrup that you get. (laughs) Kind of like maple syruping if you think about that. Right. So I've always been interested in this because it's been something that's, you know, close to my heart. And Sapelo Island is a island off the co- off the coast of Georgia. Um, it's a Gullah Geechee community, a very, very small town. Uh, the community, the people there descended from West African slaves. And purple ribbon sugarcane was very important to them historically. And uh, a lot of people are working right now to bring that crop back to the island and then start producing sugarcane once again. 
Um, That's great. And the runner being, um, of course, we did um, a show. I did a show. I had David Fields on talking about Mm -hmm. bringing those things back as well. So this is exciting. I can't wait. All right. So listen up. And this is Kat Johnson. She was on location in Charleston. Welcome back to Heritage Radio Network on tour, coming to you live from Charleston Wine and Food Festival in beautiful, sunny Charleston, South Carolina. I'm Kat Johnson with HRN, and this afternoon I'm kicking off the first of two panels we're hosting here at the Culinary Village about the history and current state of Southern foodways. Specifically, we're taking a look at crops that have been on the brink of extinction, but through dedicated collaboration have been brought back so that those valuable genetics can be preserved for future generations. Joining me today are some guys who are all part of these efforts to protect and celebrate Southern agriculture. First up, we have Sean Brock, who's the chef partner at Husk Restaurant, and they most recently opened their Savannah location. Not only has he brought attention to Southern cuisine through his award-winning restaurants and cookbooks, Sean has also spent time developing his own farm to experiment in resurrecting and growing crops that were at risk of extinction, such as those indigenous to this area pre-Civil War. Sean, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm also joined by Doc Bill Thomas. I was first introduced to him by Dr. David Shields um, when I asked about purple ribbon cane syrup that was being produced on Sapelo Island in Georgia. Doc Bill has, um, is living outside of Atlanta currently, but also owns property on Hog Hammock, which is on Sapelo Island, um, and he's of Gullah Geechee descent. Doc Bill has edited and co-authored Cherokee and Sapelo Island cookbooks and posted a series of YouTube videos about Sapelo cooking. Welcome to you, Doc Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. And lastly, we have Jerome Dixon. He's the co-owner of Georgia Coastal Gourmet Farms. They produce Sapelo Island red peas and sour oranges, for as an example. And Jerome and Doc Bill are business partners and have led the charge in bringing purple ribbon sugarcane back to Sapelo Island and to begin producing the syrup once again. Welcome, Jerome. Thanks for having me. So to kick things off, um, I just kind of want to get uh, from you, Doc Bill and Jerome, an idea of the historical context when we're talking about growing purple ribbon sugar cane on Sapelo Island and making syrup from that cane. Okay, it was an interesting project. David Shields uh, was one of the initial people working with us, and we discussed the project of doing purple ribbon sugar cane, bringing a crop back that was grown around 1805 on Sapelo Island. There were many canes that were grown, but they had problems with dealing with the cold weather and the frost. So they ran across a type of cane that came out of the Caribbean that was more tolerant. And Spalding, back in the 18, early 1800s, was able to take this cane and able to produce significant amounts of sugar from it. And from that, uh, was able to do a fair amount of milling. And for a point in the early 1800s, Sapelo was one of the larger producers of sugar. That cane we wanted to go and bring back as close to it as we could. So he contacted a friend of his name, uh, Steve Kreskovich, who was a great guy. And we owe a lot to him because without the project, um, without Dave Steve Kresovitz, this project would not have occurred. And he brought his expertise, he went through genetic banks and found the closest matches he could get, up to 14 varieties. And once these 14 varieties were found, this was about four to five years ago, Jerome can tell you what we did with it. Yes, they brought in 14 different varieties. Um, it actually was, um, some of them was purple ribbon and then some of them was just purple all of them was different varieties and we, our, my job was to actually get them planted and to get them started. And with that being said, we wanted to see exactly which one would have the character characteristic of that purple ribbon cane. 
And out of those 14 varieties, one of them uh, prevailed, and that was the Purple Ribbon. And when did you first make your the first batch of syrup? It was in November. I think it was uh, maybe the last week in November of this year. Actually, we produced um, maybe about 60 gallons. It was just a small amount this time because when we started, we only had 14 varieties of it. And that was so a, it's a small amount. And I'm talking about maybe at the most uh, 15 plants. And we took those 15 plants, and each year we planted, we planted, we got about an acre, about a little more than an acre. And every year that's what we did, and we just kept replanting it and replanting it. And then this year we decided to pull some off, dealing with the heritage. We went through two hurricanes um, through this process. At that point, we said we need to pull the product off, and we wanted to get into the hands of very fine chefs that knew the historical content of the product and could really do the product justice. And uh, Sean Brock and Tyler Williams and Linton Hopkins were people that got their hands on the product. So, Sean, how did this syrup first get on your radar? Well, I've been very lucky. Um, over the last decade, I've, I've had an opportunity to work closely with Glenn Roberts and David Shields. And we've kind of had like a, a list, uh, like a wish list of things that we've read about and heard about and want to get back onto the table um, because... There, well, there's so many reasons that this work is, is so important. Um, and it feels like these days, and thankfully, my job is just kind of running around finding this stuff. It's like almost like being Indiana Jones or something. It's like you're just, you never know what you're going to find. And, and like you can't even get to Sapelo by, by car. You have to take a ferry. I just took a boat. <laughs> <You did. laughs> like a little one. Um, sounds more fun, maybe. But to me, this is my, this is. This is my life. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life, and this is what I've been doing for the last decade. And so it's just so fulfilling and so interesting. And um, I'd, we, David Shields have been talking about this forever and ever. And once I heard that the process had started, you know, it's just like anything on that list, you start fantasizing about the moment when you um, get to taste it. And Believe it or not, sometimes it's not as amazing as <laughs> you fantasize. And, you know, most of the time, 98% of the time it is. Um, but I would say in the last decade, this is the most exciting, most delicious, most interesting thing that I've come across in, in, in my, my journey. So was it something that, like sugarcane syrup, was it something that you were reading a lot about? Or had you tasted it maybe a while you know, a while back and you were hoping that it would become more common, like, oh, and we just have Glenn Roberts joining us. <laughs> Let me quickly introduce Glenn Roberts. He's the founder of Anson Mills, and he's a visionary who's best known for his work with Carolina Gold Rice, but has supported the efforts to revive many Southern crops, sugarcane being one of them. Um, he works tirelessly managing old grains, the land, and growers, as well as chefs like Sean and retail customers. As his website says, it's a relentless effort, but only rarely must he wear a suit. Thanks for joining us, Glenn. Without the suit. <laughs> um, so actually, Glenn, I wanted to ask you, um, we're talking right now about the, the current state of purple ribbon sugar cane and the work that Jerome and Doc Bill are doing with that. And it's really new because they just, you know, had their first batch this year, um, and it's, it's done really, really well. But first, some context when we're talking about bringing back 
certain crops from the brink of extinction or just trying to make them more widespread. Obviously, Carolina gold rice is kind of a shining example of that with the work you've done with it. So can you give us a quick story of what it took to take that from being really unknown to like a very common uh, pantry staple for people? Sure, but I think first we have to honor uh, Cornelia family, Doc, Bill, and Anita for having the vision, and Jerome, and your family too, um, because uh, this the, we wouldn't be sitting here were it not for y'all, right? Specifically, um, so th- there's a lot that still needs to be done, mm-hmm. but Doc, Bill, uh, and Anita, and Jerome have been at the point way before I even met y'all. So, thank you. Thank you 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 for your support. Thank you. You bet. Um, And so, how does rice play into this? We're currently engaged in a repatriation project, which Sean uh, is working on. What isn't Sean working on? Hi, Sean. Uh, uh, But Sean's working on Nostrali flour. And hand-in-hand with the first rice introductions uh, in the 1670s, we think, and here I don't have to be peer-reviewed like Doc Bill, who, by the way, has written massively on maroon culture and the Cherokee uh, and other native foodways, too, so we're in the presence of something really special. And this relates because the first slaves uh, were uh, Native American and Irish indentured, and they were growing what we think are two crops. We haven't proven either one because... Uh, archaeology is ongoing, but the two original crops, post-first settlement, right early, uh, with Native American uh, and Irish slaves, uh, was Nostrali, which is the heritage rice of Italy, because it was out of the Sicilian exchange through Arles, France, the Camargue, into Britain, and straight into the colonies through the Barbadian exchange as well. The other one, which is even more important, is the diaspora rice of Africa, which can be, first off, Glabarima, second, Indiga, third would be Japonica. And that's where Carolina Gold comes in, but it doesn't come in until the Revolution. So we had an entire world of food prior to that that involves sugarcane, right? Uh, And one of the most important things, because it was an engine of our settlement, both good and bad. And the engine uh, from that monetary wealth out of Barbados and the African cane that fueled that made uh, this possible, amongst other things, in Georgia, uh, later in its settlement, and early on, even in the Carolinas, because it was sugar money that made it, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, And they wanted to switch up the commodities to rice. So we started with those Italian and African rices. We suppressed those African rices in hidden gardens. We had posses running them down under the Brit government. Uh, It was a capital offense to be caught growing really good red African rice uh, in a hidden garden, amongst other things. Benny came out of the gardens. Uh, So that whole African sun cycle, direct off of the West African coast, Senegambia and others, that involved rices that led to the premier uh, identification for Carolina gold rice, then eventually Carolina long gold, which is now coming back too, I heard. Sean hasn't had it yet, but we've got it, so we need to get him some. You, ju- you mentioned someone that I think is really important that we talk about is Cornelia Bailey. Can you guys tell me who she was and why she's so important to this whole story? Uh, Cornelia is very important because she was really seen as the matriarch of Sapelo Island. She used to live on, she was born and raised on, uh, 
on Sapo. She was one of the um, last people actually born on the island. And uh, she went away, and then she came back. And when she came back, she wanted to do a lot to bring back the heritage of the island. And Cornelia's famous saying was, sometime you got to go backwards to go forward. And we need to take the history of the past, and that's what you need to go and do forward. So when I would have an agricultural project I wanted to do, she was always into it. She would always, you know, get a wealth of information. And then she provided a lot of great information on a lot of the crops that used to grow. Um, for instance, uh, even though she's passed, and she passed about a year ago, and it was very sad because she's done a lot for the island. She dedicated her life to the island. But a friend of hers uh, named Sarah Ross gave me some seeds, and these were seeds that Cornelia had gotten. They were Ethiopian red okra she had gotten. And she said, whatever you do, give these seeds to David Shields. And I said, well, if David's not here, I can give them to Glenn, and at some point I'm sure they'll find their way over to Dave. <laughs> but she's what made a lot of it possible because of her will, and she did a lot to preserve the culture. And just keeping it alive. And you don't necessarily have to do much per se as far as writing books. You just need to go and preserve the culture. Cooking a dish, planting some of the seeds, simple things like that. And the stories associated with that make things live and make things happen. So I think that one saying I, I feel like I've been hearing a lot lately is food is culture. And I think that can be kind of a vague thing to say. Everyone eats. We know that. But sugarcane specifically to me has such a specific culture around it and it's the syrup making process so can you guys explain to me in a little detail of what the syrup making process was for you last november from harvesting it to then actually making the syrup well i'll i'll take the the the, the harvesting part of it and doc bill can take the um the latter um harvesting was it, it was a challenge it was actually a challenge to um to get it actually out of the field and to where we want it. Um, normally, we would take the cane, and my grandfather, them days, they would take it and just cut it down and take it to the boiler, and then we just boil it from there. But this time, we wanted to transport the cane to and get it to, to, to the hands of somebody who could actually produce a great, great product with it. So we took it up to uh, Odom, Georgia, to a guy by the name of Mickey Morris. And he was able to, he has an evaporator system there, and he was able to actually produce that cane. So it was a challenge to actually get it cut down out of the field and transport it to where we needed to get it to go. And Dr. Bill can tell you actually the process that he took to, to get it, you know, into that pot. Most cane, when they do it, they, you get a pot, you boil the, um, get the pot hot, you pour in your, the cane syrup, which, is, um, which has been squeezed, and you boil it. Um, and from that, it's, as the water content leaves, it thickens. Mr. Morrison, which we want to use Mickey Morrison, was he's the only person in the southeast that has a boiler system that uses a steam system to heat his pans. With the steam, it's a uniform heat. You don't get any um, scalding. No matter how careful you are with those pots, and you're going fine. to get some scalding. So with this system he's developed, you don't get that. He's one of the old sugar masters. He's the only one that's got the machine. Okay, so we, we wanted to use him. And he took the syrup. And, and this flavor of the syrup is there, it gets intensified, and you get no scalding. And so you get a very clear, clean product. And it's done at a point where you don't have to worry about mold forming in it, and it's done at a point where you don't have to worry about crystals forming in it. And as you can see, I have one of the bottles here. Mm -hmm. Look at the color of it, and it produces a really high-quality product. And we figured with all the work that went through to get this cane, going through two hurricanes, whatever, mm -hmm. we wanted to make sure we, we got the best possible, and you could just experience the taste. Now, Sean, what did you first think when you tasted this cane syrup? Well, the first revelation occurred when I smelled it. I opened the lid, and I took a whiff, and I was 
really confused because it, it smelled like something that I wasn't supposed to smell like, but it was something that I like made me sort of like high, like. It was like a, you know, it was like the yeah. the somatic side of things. There was something like different, and then I realized it smells like white truffles. I really, I mean, if 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 you closed your eyes and I had you smell it and I told you it was white truffles, you would believe me. And that's when we get into the somatic side of food, and and that's where it becomes really, really, really fascinating. Um, and then. You know, when you taste it, that's that's what sunshine tastes like. like. It really is. It's like absorbing sunshine and like consuming it. It's amazing. Yeah. We'll be back with more after a short break. So stay tuned. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. And I often talk about ancient grains and old foods on my shows. I also like to cook ancient grains. Pharaoh happens to be one of those that I like to cook. I like to cook it in a variety of ways. Uh, sometimes it's just a, a side dish, uh, boiled. You have to cook it for about 40 minutes. And I like it because it tastes really earthy. It's got a good crunch. And recently I tried using farro in a recipe that I saw on the back of a package of Bob's Red Mill. Now Bob's Red Mill happens to make really good products and offers a lot of good old grains. And I tried this recipe they had for farotto, they called it on the back of the package, in which the farro is used like rice in a risotto, but you're using farro, so it's farotto. Well, it turned out that it was really quite good, and the, the farro came out with a creamy texture and yet maintained crunch and held its shape. And I happened to have some leftover pork roast that wasn't really enough for a meal or a sandwich or anything, but I chopped it up into little pieces and put that in at the end with a little Parmesan cheese. Wow, it was a good dinner. Bob's Red Mill encourages you to eat wisely. Look for their products in your local stores or check them out online at bobsredmill.com and explore their huge range of products and recipes. And use the code Taste of the Past for 25% off your order. Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food. Join us as we talk all things food. Come to Charleston, eat some seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern fare. At its finest. And have important conversations. We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about. We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is BS. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugar cane with Chef Sean Brock. It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to find. You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the 
only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks. So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong. Let's elaborate more on the... Jerome talked about this a little bit earlier, but how to find the exact strain that was going to work the best. I don't know. Glenn, do you want to take that on like how you first met and got involved? Well, yeah, I will, but then I'll pass it right back to Dr. Sure. and Jerome. Um, the, the, they were already on this trail because Sapelo, northernmost cane research center in the Western Hemisphere. So did, did, it was uh, sort of a no-brainer, and I have to tell everybody, Bill knows this, I don't know whether you know it, Jerome, but when I went down there, we, we were the only reason why Joe York, John T., Cornelia, you guys uh, asked us to come down was because we want to make sure that you guys were biosecure on peas and had full access to uh, the pea collections at CREC, which you guys saw and you know is vast. Um, and, and in doing so, uh, David uh, said he wanted to go. Normally, we call Dr. Merle Shepard frequent flyer because he works all over the world, and he'll go anywhere at any time. He's uh, past director uh, of Clemson Coastal Research here, the agricultural and U.S. federal vegetable research uh, station where it's located on Highway 17 South. When I said, we're going to Sablo, Merle said, yeah! You know, he said, I'll go. And then we had saddled up at 1.30 in the morning, and Merle was the only one besides me that was excited, and David was going, you know, I drink 30 cups of tea a day? I don't know. Uh, and Steve Kresovich, who was behind the genetics and the search uh, on this, wasn't on this trip. Brian Ward was, who's up here. And, uh, and it comes out of Doc Bill's uh, and Anita's and Jerome's integrity through Linton to John T. to Joe York, back to Cornelia, uh, because... Sapelo is unique. It's the size of Manhattan, right? And you know, so I'm I'm holding forth in Jerome and Bill's territory, and Anita is uh, definitely family. So the, the the reality past that was that Steve Kresovich is just happens to be the Coker Chair at Clemson University in genetics, and he happens also to be the world's foremost cane serial geneticist, and he's worked in Sub-Saharan Africa. And when David put the proposition he said, to Doc Bill, Doc Bill said, of course, that makes sense. Jerome said, yeah, I'm all in. And Steve Kresovich then said, okay, well, we'll get the genetics. And they looked, and it wasn't there. And then that search started, and Doc Bill was facilitating it. Jerome was facilitating. Steve Kresovich, they found some at the Botanical Gardens in Philadelphia. They would not release any for cuttings. Odd, since it's y'all stuff. Um, and it was daunting. And so I'll let... Doc Bill tell the rest of it. So when Steve came over and uh, David Shields, we decided to end, to look into the project. Cornelia was involved and Jerome was involved. And uh, we looked at uh, doing the project in two phases. One, we set up a farm called Georgia Coastal Gourmet Farms on the mainland, which was a farm that we set up. And we set it up that way so that we could have a dual approach. So if the plants would originally be planted on there, we had more control and it was the mainland side. And then at the end of the year, we'd take half the plants over to Sapelo. Sapelo's a barrier island. And if something happened to the Sapelo crop, we'd have the crop on the mainland side still going. Right. Um, and so it's a good perspective. Because the last time hurricanes, which can damage things, occurred there was in 1897. And what are the chances of a hurricane hitting Sapelo? Again, you know, well, it's pretty high. Um, the, um, there are a lot of things we were with. There's cultural views. When people are young and they grow plants... Uh, they have views of how they grew it and how their grandparents used to grow it. 
And so you have that. So a lot of people on the island, they would grow, they grew cane, but there was just one or two small patches. And now you're looking to actually grow a large crop. So you just, it's an education on both sides. Um, but we worked through all that, and there was ups and downs, but we worked through all that. And at the end of the um, four years, which was the original project on the mainland, we produced about an acre of um, purple ribbon cane. And I have to thank Jerome because every day he went out there and looked after it. Every day he put the time in, and, and every day he wasn't getting paid. <laughs> and Jerome, how is the cane doing now for next year? Well, we, we just experienced a really, really cold winter. Um, one of the things that David Shields said to us, he said, now this characteristic of this purple ribbon cane is a very cold, hardy cane, and it can actually withstand a lot of cold. So this year, um, about a couple of months ago, this uh, purple ribbon cane was put through the test. We had a, maybe about a whole week of just freezing temperature. The ground was freeze for about five days straight. And then on top of that, we had snow that we don't normally see in our area. So we were a bit concerned about how was this cane going to respond to it because after all, they said it was a cold, hardy cane and it actually can, can endure the, the cold. So um, lo and behold, about a week ago, I said, well, I'll go out and check the field and observe and see how things are going. I kept my fingers crossed and we walked out in the field and they're up about maybe about five inches tall. The whole field is covered with sugar cane. So it's doing very well. So we expecting this crop to actually be um, very productive this year. And is that on the mainland? That's, and on, Sa- that's on the mainland and Sapelo. And Sapelo. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Sapelo has a smaller area. Sapelo got hit with hurricane. Was it, um, was it Irma? Irma. Irma. And the field where the cane was in was under two feet of water. Not talking, I mean, it was under two feet of water for, for a good day, day for, for a good day. And then after a while, it took a while. To, so, so a lot of that small patch got hit. I'd say they lost about 70% of it. Um, and um, so we were able to go, and from last year, we, we took some cane and, and did some another replanting. A replanting on Sapelo. On Sapelo. And um, that crop just came up about a week ago, too. That's, uh, that's up. So they're back on track. They've been delayed because of the um, event, but, you know, it just takes time. For those who don't know, how, do you, how exactly do you plant cane? How do you plant cane? Cane is very, I would say, very simple. Um, I've been around cane all my life. Um, you would just, these days in time, you know, we had, we have, sometimes we have a mild winter, sometimes we have a cold winter. So what we do, we'll, we'll do a furlough. Kind of bank the cane up, we'll do a furlough, just lay the cane in the ground, cut the whole stalk, just lay the whole stalk in the ground, and then you, you slice it, cover it back up, and you let it go. Um, you keep it fertilized and well watered, and in um, nine months you got canes. So. The, the, the disadvantage of that system is you need the whole plant. If you, you got, got a that. seed, you keep a seed in the container, you can do it. But if you lose all that that's in the ground, your crop is gone. Yeah. And growing sugar cane from seed is difficult. It takes a long time for the seed, for the plant to, to flower. And the seeds are very, very small. And we're going to try this year uh, putting a few canes in the greenhouse and see if we can get some seed from it. Um, and because, you know, this is an old cane, so it should reproduce. Some of the newer canes, these newer hybrids, don't. The they seeds don't. are sterile. Right. right. Um, but, but this is an old variety, so that shouldn't be an issue. So I want to ask something about more generally. When I spoke to David Shields on the phone um, about a month ago about this panel, and he pointed me in your direction, Doc Bill, and then also when I talked to Glenn on the phone maybe last week, when I brought up Sapelo Island... From both guys, it was like, when I brought, mentioned that word, it was like 
it was like, it's a magical place. Do you understand like how incredible Sapelo Island is? So can you guys explain to me, Doc Bill, because you, you first visited in 2000, is that in 2000, right? me and my wife, we actually got, uh, you know, for a honeymoon, we spent it on Sapelo with Cornelia, um, you know, and... Um, and it's, it's a unique island. It's the size of Manhattan. It's about 14 miles long, anywhere from two to four miles across. It was the center at some, a long time ago with Spalding. He did a lot of things with crop rotation, uh, with, with um, sugarcane, sea island cotton, a lot of crops he brought in there. Um, but the island has about 50 people on it, if you, if you stretch it. Um, and 98% of the land, actually 99% of the land, is undeveloped. And it's really a state park. But there is a small community called Hog Hammock which people can go to. And we have a place called the Birdhouses. Yeah, called the Birdhouses, called the Sapo Island Birdhouses, which me and my wife uh, set up. And it's a place where people can stay. But we also use some of the money from the, those vacation cottages to, to fund the projects and also to give, our, give employment to the few young people that are on the island. So we, with our, if you don't mind me saying, our website is at sapwildandbirdhouses.com, and when people come there, we take some of the proceeds and we, um, and, um, we, we use it to fund the projects that we're doing like this. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really, really... It's on. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's, um, it, they're, they're beautiful, they're amazing. It's just, you have so much privacy and such amazing views. I can't wait to come hang out in those birdhouses. So amazing. I have one thing. I have one thing to uh, add. One, this gives raising cane a whole new meaning. Okay. Right, got that. Yeah. All right. Um, I'm looking right. at it. Right. 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 Uh, there, there's two things to note. Fighting cows. That's the first thing you said to me, and I was like, yeah. "What?" Yeah. Yeah. So do, do you guys have to tell everybody about that. And the second thing is tell everybody about Cornelius' dad and how everybody used to do this. I'm. I'm. I'm got all this. You know what I'm talking about? They'd stand there in the room and said, "Okay, every ter- everywhere I swing my hands, this is this is me, as far out as I can reach." You guys remember that? I don't remember. Okay. Do the fighting cows, no matter what. Okay. Uh, there used to be a, a lot of dairy cattle on on Sapelo, and cattle brought for other. Like, um, there used to be a lot of dairy cattle on Sapelo, and what happened was when it was turned over to the state, uh, the cows were let loose. And when I say cattle, these are some big bulls built to 2,000 pounds. So it's, they're not small cows. You go to Cumberland Island and they have the little horses. These are big. And they're feral. <laughs> and they're about, um, about maybe 80 to 110 on the island around there. So when you plant crops on Sapelo of, let's say, peas, you've got to put up some structure. Because, it's, it's, you know, that's something that likes to eat peas. Right. You know, so that's one thing. But you see them along the road, and you see them most at night. And it's unique to the island, and that's kind of neat. And Glenn told me that they fight in the full moon. They do. They, they'll fight, and they'll, um, they'll, they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll butt heads. And um, they'll walk along the roads. Most of them at the north end. But if you think about it, cattle also like water. And so they'll walk along the marsh areas and stuff with that. And, it, and it's unique to Sapelo. But it can present some problems agricultural-wise. Sure. <laughs> yeah, we, we worry about geese. Right. But I can't imagine having a full-grown steer with wild horns running oh, at me when I'm trying yeah. to get them out of a corn patch. Ge- geese are mean for sure, but cows have a lot more weight behind right. them. Yeah. And, they're feral, and they're feral cows, so um, you know, that's something that's neat. Occasionally, some of the locals have eaten some that had, you know, things have happened, and they've um, used some of the meat. There are a few domestic cattle on the island, but not much. And one horse on the island. There's one more thing to say. The most expensive beef in Europe 
are the fighting cows of Switzerland. Wow. I'm in. <laughs> you wonder what that barbecue's like, dude. Yeah. yeah, when are we all going? Count me We're ready. in. Count me in, too. Um, so, Sean, really quick, I want to ask you, because this is something... So, as I've told, I think, most of you, um, my dad also makes sugarcane syrup in Alabama, so I'm, it's different, but it's... Uh, I grew up having it, like, on biscuits and on pancakes. That was just kind of the, the most that we would do with it, but then as I've grown up and, you know, we make cocktails with it, and it's, like, a great way to, like you know, replace simple syrup or things. But Sean, how do you, how are you using it on the menus right now? What are some creative uses of sugarcane syrup beyond just a replacement for maple syrup? Well, in Savannah right now, our um, our idea is to remove refined sugar. And if we need to sweeten anything, that's what we reach for. And that's changed the, the flavor of everything. And it's just, it has just such a this beautiful depth to it that just kind of hides in the background that um, is so much better for you than sugar, the refined sugar, and so much more delicious. It adds like an umami note. Um, when you taste that through the reduction process, the evaporation, gives it that, that uh, savoriness that's just amazing. Right now, we're featuring it on um, rice waffles. We have these beautiful rice waffles uh, that we serve alongside some old country ham and we drizzle that syrup on top and it's I mean it's like you when I eat it I like leave the earth like I just drift away it's so delicious what about you guys Jerome and Doc Bill like what, do you have some favorite ways of using syrup well my grandparents all they did we ever did we use it on biscuits this yeah. morning. I mean it's just a typical way but of course if you get in the hands of a Sean Broth and Tyler Williams, I mean, they can actually take it to the next level. So, you know, we used to eating it on, on biscuits in the morning time, and sometimes my grandfather would actually use it for a municipal purpose, you know. Yeah. yeah. I've got some at home right now uh, turning to vinegar, so I can't wait to oh, see wow. how that turns that out. That will be really interesting, for sure. Now, the stack cake has syrup in it, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That oh, stack yes. cake. Oh, You've wow. got to talk oh, about the yeah, stack cake. amazing stack cake. Tell I've me what the it. stack cake is. Oh, yeah. It's just... I mean, it's like old school stack cake, which is a, an amazing tradition. You know, it, it was born out of um, like these communal gatherings like uh, a, a syrup boiling or, or a sorghum potluck. Everyone brings a little thin layer and then uh, you stack it up. And this one, we, we just soak it and heavily flavor it with this syrup. And I eat like three pieces a day. Sounds awesome. My my last question for Doc Bill and Jerome is um, what's next for South Willow Island? I know the cane is going to continue. You're going to do another batch of it um, this year. Uh, But, you know, in addition to that, you have the peas, you have oranges, you have all these other amazing things that were native to South Willow Island that you're growing. So are there any teasers you can give me to what you're going to be working on next? We're starting seriously to work with the oranges as far as getting a crop and getting some trees going. Cane took a lot out of us. I, when I started the if I had known it was going to be that much work, <laughs> I wouldn't have done it. You would have done it. It's a lot of work, but we did it. It, it was a lot of work. So a lot of the things, we had, we have two small, we had a small farm, we did a lot of lettuce and stuff. We laid back on that because the cane took a lot of work, but we're glad we did that. 
And so now that the cane is up and going, we can focus back and get the oranges going. But I'd like to look at projects involving the sour oranges, because the oranges were brought here around in the 1750s, 1790s, 1780s. And a Seville orange is not the same as the Asian orange. It's from, it's from a different part of the world. Uh, but they have tremendous flavor. So we want to look at ways of utilizing the orange and the orange blossoms. Right. David Shield did his book on provisions. They had these great recipes coming out of the coast with orange blossoms and things like that. So we're right now looking to do some stuff with that and with syrup. Um, and that's what we're sort of, it's a tease, but, you know, takes, the idea is one thing. So mm-hmm. we're, we're trying to work with that and trying to get something like that out, a product associated with that out. Um, Jerome, tell, tell us where people can learn more about Georgia Coastal Gourmet Farms. Uh, it's actually on the website, georgiacoastalgourmetfarms.com. Um, you can go on our website. We have all the information there about the, um, the purple ribbon cane syrup and the peas. So if you visit our website, that's georgiacoastalgourmet.com. Can you buy the syrup right now? <laughs> you got to you gotta build no. that demand. Ash, Ash right, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> he has it all. Go to Husk. Go to Husk. <laughs> I was just thinking, like, I don't even want to share it with the restaurants. I just want it all in my house. <laughs> um, Doc, Doc Bill, can you, and also, uh, can you tell people where they can learn more about the, the birdhouses? You can. You can go to sapeloislandbirdhouses.com is our website, and it gives you information not on the birdhouses, but it's a great website of information on the island. Mm-hmm. Right. It talks a little about the projects we're doing, the, the places on the island, some of the people, the food, and the culture. So we set the website up for that purpose. Yeah. You know, and if you want to taste this um, this cane, you can go to Husk and Savannah. Yeah. Or you can go to Restaurant Eugene's in yeah. Atlanta. Yes, yes. Um, and then, of course, um, Husk Savannah. Does that, do you have the URL for Husk? Huskrestaurant.com. There you go. And then Anson Mills, AnsonMills.com to learn Usually. More. Usually. AnsonMills.com. As long yeah. as Glenn wants to keep it that way. Um, we have to wrap up. I could talk you guys all day about this maybe we will later um but for now we have to wrap up and go on to our next show um thank you once again to jerome dixon and doc bill thomas who are with uh, georgia coastal gourmet farms and are making sapelo island purple ribbon cane and thank you to glenn roberts of anson mills and to sean brock of husk um we are going to be back here tomorrow uh with another panel with Nat Bradford, Forrest Parker, and Brian Ward to talk, have a similar conversation, but about the African runner peanut. So if you found this interesting and want to learn more about preserving these um, crops before they go extinct, tune into that. Um, once again, I'm Kat Johnson for Heritage Radio Network. Stay tuned. We will be back shortly with an interview with Chef Todd Richards from Atlanta. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage.